السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين Brothers and sisters in Islam We arrive now at lesson number 35 on the seerah, the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Last week we spoke about the first part of the conquest of Mecca when the Prophet ﷺ finally enters Mecca and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants him and his companions, especially the Muhajirun. The Muhajirun because the Muhajirun, if you remember, are the people who were kicked out of their home in Mecca. And they migrated for the sake of Allah to Medina. These Muhajirun, are the best and the most elite of Sahabas that you could ever hear about or know about. And the Ansar are the first people who converted to Islam in Medina. They are the ones who gave up their property, their life, their wealth, and their family. They sacrificed their own selves, their blood, pledging to protect the Prophet and to protect Islam. So whenever you hear the word Muhajirun and Ansar, always remember, they are the best creation in the universe after the messages and the prophets. The best. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave them the entrance finally into Mecca. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, if you remember, he entered on his camel while his head was dangling down in absolute humility. Rasulullah did not enter with his head up high, but he entered with humility, which is quite odd. Because here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given him the ultimate victory. Against who? Against the very people who were the cause of kicking him out of Mecca, persecuted him, killed a lot of his companions, even his daughter Zainab, radiallahu anha. They killed her. They are the people who tortured the Muslims. The ones who caused the Prophet ﷺ the worst grief. And now, in the eighth year of Hijrah, we are talking about... We're talking about nearly, what, 13 plus 8 years? 21 years, the Prophet ﷺ finally comes to where? back home and by the will of Allah he has entered and no one can face him with more than 12,000 soldiers converted to Islam about nearly 7,000 of them only in the past two years the Prophet ﷺ enters with his head dangling down and his beard touching the saddle of his camel some other companions, however, entered with their head up high in the sense as though they deserve to be praised. They entered with a feeling of a little bit of pride. Not pride in the haram way, but pride in the sense that they deserve to be proud of themselves. However, the Prophet ﷺ doesn't look at victory from Allah as something for you to rejoice 
over and celebrate in the sense that, you know, you get over celebrating. Because when you start doing that, your emotions start making you feel as though you did it all. And you forget that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one that gave you this. So you've got a humility. Humility is, this, is the way the mu'min celebrates the victory of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we talked about how the Prophet ﷺ entered and what happened with some of the people of Mecca and how some of the enemies ran away and how some of them the Prophet ﷺ freed and forgave. We also said that whoever enters their home is, is safe, whoever is around the Kaaba is safe, whoever enters the house of the great leader Abu Sufyan is safe. They thought that the Prophet ﷺ was going to kill them because they knew that they deserved it, they felt guilty. But the Prophet ﷺ enters and not a single person is killed except those who tried to fight Khalid ibn Walid. And obviously they fought them back. And then they fleed. A lot of the Muslims went to the Prophet ﷺ to give protection to some family members or friends of theirs that were in Mecca. We talked about that last week. And we kept going on to talk about how the Prophet ﷺ did a few miracles in there. Until Abu Sufyan himself, the religion really entered into his heart. And as the Prophet ﷺ circumambulated around the Kaaba doing tawaf, he called upon the people of the Mecca and he stood up on Mount Safa. You know Safa and Marwa? He stood over there. And Sorry, this camera is playing up. Just a second, please, please. Okay. And then what happened? Rasulullah then enters, he goes on to Safa and starts to telling the people, what do you think I'm going to do to you? And they said to him, we've only known you to be merciful. So we said to them, Go, for you are free. Habibi, can I get you to sit over here? Thank you. That's the way. Because the camera's seeing your face and it's following you. You must be very special. My brothers and sisters in Islam. So the Prophet ﷺ said, Go, for you are free, after all what they have done to you. And no one can do that except for a messenger of Allah. No one can do that except a prophet of Allah. To forgive from his heart. None of us can do that. My brothers and sisters in Islam. And so he offered the people to come to him to pledge allegiance. Before he did that, we, all, we said last week that he got the key. And there was a miracle story about the key of the Kaaba. Which remains still in that family till today. Rasul enters the Kaaba. And he starts to destroy whatever idols were in there. He brings Umar ibn al-Khattab inside the Kaaba. And the Kaaba had six pillars. He sees on, in the Kaaba that they had drawn the image of Maryam salam, Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ And he told Umar to wipe off the image. For there shouldn't be any images inside of the Kaaba. In fact, there shouldn't be images of faces in our homes even, brothers and sisters. Rasulullah said that the angels do not enter a home that has images of faces or a dog in it. The angels don't like to enter a house with images of faces of human beings or animals. 
Some people say to Mori, if it's your family, even family, the idea is images of faces because of its origin of idolatry. And the, lost, and the angels don't like to enter a home that has a dog in there or images. They are disgusted by the dog's saliva, although the dog is a nice animal. And whoever looks after a dog gets rewarded. However, angels don't enter the house with a dog inside. So Rasulullah told Umar al to wipe off what? Maryam's image and Jesus Christ that they had in there. And they also had the image of what they thought was Ibrahim and his son Ismail. And they showed an image of Ibrahim and Ismail as though they were gambling. Or not gambling, they were picking arrows. In those days they used to call it Aslam, which means calling shots to see your good luck. What they used to do was, they used to put arrows and one of them had a ribbon on it or some mark inside of something and then they would pick out the arrow and if it turned out with the mark it meant some good luck and if they turned an arrow around on, on a rotating thing it will turn around and if it, whatever its face, its dire, whatever it was dire, any direction it was facing they would follow in the arrow's direction. So basically they believed in good luck, gambling and superstitions. Rasulullah looks at the image and he says, May Allah curse them. Wallahi, this shaykh, meaning Ibrahim this shaykh never practiced superstitions and good luck gambling ever. So he cleaned it off with his own blessed clothes, the Prophet. There was a bird in there and some deers made out of gold. The Prophet broke them as well. And then he brought in Bilal and Usama with him, and the Prophet prayed at one of the pillars. He prayed inside the Kaaba. Which face did he? Which direction did he face? Which direction do you think you would face if you were inside of the Kaaba? Any direction. If you were on the roof of the Kaaba, which direction? Any direction. There's that little semicircle around the right side of the Kaaba. Have you seen it? We call it Hijr Ismail. There used to be a room for Ismail. If you prayed inside of that, which direction do you face? Any direction. Because that's actually part of the Kaaba. It's amazing, isn't it? Tayyib, you don't know where the Kaaba is. Let's say you're in the desert and you don't know which direction the Qibla is. Which way do you face? You don't know. Where? Any direction. Because do we pray to the Kaaba? No. What does Allah say? Then if you don't know, the ayah is in context of, if you don't know where it is, then wherever you face, you are facing Allah. Allah is not bound by space or time or direction. And nothing can explain Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. For He's different to everything. And that's what makes Him Allah. For if He was to be described like anything, then you are making Him similar to creation. He will not be Allah. He has to be outside of His creation. So we worship Allah. We don't worship the Kaaba. If we worship the Kaaba, why would the Prophet ﷺ, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give him the dua of changing the direction from Jerusalem to the Kaaba? Why would Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say anywhere you face is that is you are facing Allah? Why is it that if you're praying inside of the Kaaba, you face any direction? The Kaaba is just too a symbol of unity for the Muslims because Allah is one. The Tawheed is one. Worshipping Allah is one. Religion of Allah is one. It's never changed. Jesus, Moses, Abraham, Adam, all the way to the beginning. It has never changed. Allah's religion has always been one type of religion. My brothers and sisters in Islam, then the Prophet ﷺ called 
Bilal to make the adhan on top of the roof. We said this last week. And he sends off some companions outside of Mecca to destroy whatever remained of idols that were around. So Mecca is huge. And Arabia is huge. And there were hundreds of idols everywhere. Rasulullah sent his companions to break whatever idols there were. Why? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the creator who sent his messengers and prophets, he sent all his messengers and prophets to worship who? Allah. Who is the owner of the universe? Allah. Who has the right to say who you worship? Allah. He owns everything. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ordered all of his prophets and messengers to break the idols and deities because they are not worthy of worship. Only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is worthy of worship. Jesus Christ السلام, is a prophet of Allah. Those who worship him on the day of judgment, he will bear innocence from them. He will say, oh my, Allah will say to him, are you the one who told the people to worship me, as in Jesus Christ, and my mother Mary, instead of Allah? And Isa السلام, himself will say, O oh my Lord, in kuntu kultuhu fa anta ta'lamu. If I said it, you know it. How can I say something, O oh Allah, which I have no right to? He has no right to be worshipped. For only Allah, and in the Bible, if you want to go by the ancient uh, wordings, the Father in heaven, He is the creator of everything. So my brothers and sisters, it was the right of the Prophet ﷺ, like every other Prophet before him, to break the deities and idols which man invented. And so he returned the people back to the oneness of Allah, worshipping Allah alone. Rocks and stones cannot benefit you. The priest in the church cannot forgive you. Only Allah can forgive you. Your father and mother can do nothing for you without Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. My brothers and sisters in Islam, Tawheed was established once again. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ordered that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam call whoever wants to to give them the option of coming and pledging allegiance with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So all the people in Mecca, there was about a thousand of them, a little bit more, a little bit less, women and men, not the children though, the women and the men. What happened? He said to them, anyone who wants to embrace Islam, you have the freedom to come to me and pledge allegiance. Meaning, they have to come to the Prophet ﷺ, shake his hands and say, we bear witness that there is no God worthy of worship except Allah and that you are his messenger. And we vow not to worship any other God, a deity beside Allah, and not to commit adultery, fornication, zina, and not to kill our children, because some Arabs used to kill their baby born girls and some of them used to kill the boys as well. And in today's time, this will be equivalent to Abortion, that is murder of your children. And not to kill your children. And not to do a dirty, indecent act. And not to bear witness to false. The Prophet ﷺ told them to do that. And obviously to obey Allah and His Messenger. So the men and the women started to come to the Prophet ﷺ in groups. 
pledging allegiance and embracing Islam out of their own will. Out of their own will. Because Prophet ﷺ did not force anybody to do it. As the people were coming to embrace Islam, a woman who had her face covered arrived with a group of women. She's trying to hide among the women. She doesn't want to reveal herself. And she was one of the women whom the Prophet ﷺ had sentenced to death. So she spoke, and she was a very vocal woman. We'll know who she is in a minute. She said, These gods did not benefit us anything. The Prophet ﷺ recognized her voice. And immediately he said, Hind, Hind, the killer of his uncle, Hamza. Before he could say his next word, Hind immediately says, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashhadu anna Muhammad annaka Rasulullah. Why? She knows. She's afraid she might get killed. So she embraces Islam and saves herself. But she embraces Islam sincerely and properly. And then the Prophet sallallahu is sitting there. Umar radiallahu anhu is sitting there. Umar. And suddenly you hear Umar radiallahu anhu laughing. He started laughing at what Hind did. Because she's amazing. Comes and saves herself with that. So the Prophet ﷺ said, okay, okay. So, put your hand out. The women put their hand out, but the Prophet, and the Prophet ﷺ would put his hand out, but he did not touch their hands. Another way the Prophet ﷺ pledged allegiance with them was that he had a bucket full of water. And the women would place their hand in the water, and the Prophet would place his hand in the water. And that would be considered like shaking hands. In another narration, in Ibn Ishaq, remember in the beginning when I first started these lectures, I told you which references I'm using. Ibn Ishaq, Ibn Hisham, Ibn Sa'ad, some from Ahmad ibn Hanbal, from Bukhari and Muslim. This is where I'm getting all my information from. And in another narration, which is a weak narration, it says that the Prophet used to put a cloth between him and the women and shake hands. But that's a weak narration, we're not sure of its authenticity. What we're sure of is that he used to put his hand out, they put their hand out, but they wouldn't touch, or put it in water. And Aisha radiallahu anha said, By Allah, wallahi, the hand of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam never touched the hand of another woman ever, which, which is not halal for him. My brothers and sisters in Islam, Rasulullah also said in the, in the uh, hadith, which is in Sahih Muslim, that for a person's, for a man's hand or woman's hand to touch each other's hand of another, that are not lawful for one another is easier for to be hit with an iron uh, thread or iron needle or something like that is easier than the man and woman to touch each other. Now there is a difference of opinion about that in cases of necessity, whether men and women can shake hands or not. I'll leave that to the ulama, but the majority of them say that touching is not allowed. Obviously in necessity, everything becomes okay. My brothers and sisters in Islam, what happens next? Hind comes in to pledge allegiance. And what does she do? She says, the Rasul says, you pledge allegiance to not do shirk. She said, my idols did not benefit me anything. I pledge allegiance not to do shirk. Then he said to the women, pledge allegiance not to commit zina. Not to commit adultery. Now the women are saying we pledge allegiance not to commit adultery, but, but Hind doesn't like this. She says, what? Are there women that dirty and that low that commit adultery and fornication? I don't, we don't do stuff like that. This is what other women do. Like she's, And she said, she said, slave women. 
or women who don't have a lineage as for us, we don't do such a thing. So adultery and fornication was not known to the elite people of the Arabs. The Prophet ﷺ looks at her and says, just say it. She says, we pledge allegiance not to commit zina. And then he said, pledge allegiance not to kill your children. She said, hm, we gave birth to them and you guys killed them in Badr. Battle of Badr, you killed our children. And Umar was laughing at what she's saying. The Prophet ﷺ then said, okay, you are now a Muslim. What is halal for you is halal, what's halal for us, halal for us, haram for us is haram for you. Umar was laughing at all these things and Hind is very vocal. Obviously she didn't know that there were women who were committing zina, there were men who were committing zina, there were children who were being killed. But obviously she had to learn a little bit more about her society and people around her, a bit more open-mindedness. Because Umar is laughing at how close-mindedness she is. She doesn't know much about her life. My brothers and sisters in Islam, then after that, pledging of allegiance happened and over a thousand people converted to Islam. The, remember Safwan? He was the son of Umayyah. Umayyah ibn Khalaf is one of the worst enemies to the Prophet ﷺ, was killed in Badr. So Safwan, he still doesn't want to embrace Islam. And remember we said the Prophet ﷺ, he asked for two months to think about it if he wants to embrace Islam. So the Prophet ﷺ gave him four months to think about it. So he comes back and Safwan is given amnesty for four months to be in peace if he wants to think about and converting to Islam. And then what happened? Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam then said to Khalid ibn al-Walid he said to him there is a tribe nearby and they were called Judayl he sent him saying to him go and call them to Islam in peace I want you to listen to this carefully go and call them to Islam in peace ya Khalid and do not fight anybody so he goes with a little group of soldiers, just in case, with their swords. And they arrive at this tribe called Banu, called Banu Judayl, or Judayl. These people had already embraced Islam, but not officially with the Prophet ﷺ. And they were coming out to go to the Prophet ﷺ to find him to pledge allegiance. Khalid ibn Walid didn't know about this. Okay, He didn't know about this. So he arrives and he sees a group of them with their leader coming out on their horses with their swords unsheathed. It was the custom of that tribe that when they meet people who are coming in, they come out with their swords. At the same time, they didn't know it was Khalid ibn Walid, the messenger of Muhammad So they were also careful just in case they attack them. They don't know who Khalid ibn Walid is. So they're ready as well. Khalid ibn Walid on the other hand, he's thinking the other way around. Why are they coming out with their swords? Do they want to fight us? Now Khalid ibn Walid is used, he's a, he's, a, he's a warrior. He knows about wars. Never in his history did he see people coming out with their swords before anything has happened. He thought they're coming out to fight them. So before that, he said to them in hastiness, Who are you? And they said, We are people called Sabatna. We are people who have left our religion. Now, the Meccans and the people around used to use that term when the Prophet first 
called to Islam. They used to say, anyone who embraces Islam, they used to say, he or she is a sabit. It means they left the religion, meaning they left paganism and they entered into Islam. So these people are saying we sabatna, meaning we left our old religion and embraced Islam. But they didn't know how to say it. They said it in a way that they thought all the Arabs would understand. Khalid ibn Walid, on the other hand, is now used to the Islamic terminology. They're supposed to say, Aslamna. We have converted to Islam. So he thought they left Islam. They apostated. And now they're coming with their swords to fight the Muslims. So he took it as hostility. These are coming out to fight him. So he ordered his army to capture them. And if they resist, to fight them. He came to capture them. They tried to resist to explain themselves. But instead he killed some of them and took some of them hostage. Subhanallah, it was a big mistake. Big mistake, misunderstanding. And what made it even worse is that some of the Sahabas that were with Khalid ibn al-Walid, they were from the elite, the senior of the Sahabas, the Muhajirun, the Ansar, who had embraced Islam before Khalid ibn al-Walid. And they did whatever he said. So he found it also as though he's made the right decision. But obviously it was the wrong thing to do. They took hostages and they returned back to the Prophet ﷺ and they took over that tribe. They settled in there. When the news reached the Prophet ﷺ, Khalid Malid comes with these hostages, the Prophet ﷺ asks him, Why did you do that, Ya Khalid? Why did you kill them? Why did you attack them? And they, you didn't try to find out beforehand. And Khalid Malid said, Ya Rasulullah, this is what they said, this is what they did. The Prophet ﷺ then put the hand of Khalid Malid upwards. And he said, Allahumma inni abra'u mimma fa'ala Khalid. Oh Allah, I am innocent from what Khalid did. I am innocent from what Khalid did. His sword, it has harshness in it. It kills too quick. And Khalid bin Walid became so sad and depressed about that. He cried and repented to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But we can understand Muhammad Walid how he was confused. And so it was a sincere mistake. But look at the Prophet what he did. He had to still declare in open the mistake so that people don't take this as a role model because if he left it, people will do it after him. And what that teaches us, brothers and sisters, and I speak especially to the young people, never ever be hasty in fighting someone. Never ever be hasty in judging someone. Do not ever ever act. Listen to this careful, carefully, brothers and sisters. Never ever act on assumption. Even if you have signs and evidence, never act on assumption. Because there was a story of Amr ibn al-As where there was a companion in front of him and he killed him even though the companion said the shahada. And he said, Ya Rasulullah, he died, he, he said the shahada out of fear. He was just afraid because I, I was going to kill him. The Prophet said to him, Ashaqatta an qalbi? Did you open up his heart to see if he meant it or didn't mean it? If he was afraid or he didn't, wasn't afraid? Well, did you open up his heart? Okay, it's all clear to you on the outside, but you cannot. Make this judgment of kufr just like that. Did you open up his heart? So on assumption, we cannot do that. And this was obviously doubt and assumption. Some young people, they go out and they fight and they call kufr this and kufr that based on assumptions without. And furthermore, Khalid Walid, if he wanted to attack them, why didn't he give them the option of converting to Islam? Or the option of paying the, what they call the, the, the almsgiving, the, the, uh, the jizya. He didn't even do that. So the Prophet ﷺ ordered that the army get out of the tribe immediately and give back all their belongings. And Rasulullah was a just Prophet of Allah.
So that was the story of Khalid ibn al-Walid radiallahu anhu. Now the Prophet sallallahu hears, remembers the revolt of the people of Ta'if. Do you remember the Ta'if people? They're the ones when the Prophet sallallahu went there in about the 10th year of prophethood and they treated him so badly. Remember? Their leader was called Abu, Abu Yalayla who, who, who abused the Prophet ﷺ and he went and gathered people against him, men, women and children. They started throwing rocks at the Prophet ﷺ when Zayd was with him. Do you remember? We talked about this a few lessons ago. And the Prophet ﷺ bled from his feet and he sat under the grapevine and he called out to Allah, Oh Allah, who are you leaving me to? Very, very sad story. When Allah ﷻ sent Jibreel ﷺ to him and he said, I have the angel of the mountain who will crush these people of Ta'if for what they have done to you, Ya Rasulullah. And the Prophet ﷺ, what did he say? He said, no. For maybe from their loins, they will have children who will convert, who will worship Allah alone. Don't touch them. And only a messenger of God would say that. Because what is a messenger of Allah's purpose on earth? To take the people out of darkness, into light, from hell, to heaven, to Jannah, from losthood, to guidance. All the Prophets did that. And now came the time where the Prophet ﷺ has been avoiding it, but he had to do it. What was it? He had to go and deal with the people of Ta'if. Why? Remember in our last lesson, he found out that the people of Ta'if were conspiring and getting ready to attack the Muslims and kill them. And three of their leaders had gone to Transjordan to learn from the Romans how to make the big towers and catapults to fight Muhammad So the Prophet didn't go to a Ta'if to initiate any war. He went to a Ta'if to have to be on the front foot because he already knew that they were going to get him. Their leader that was left behind in Al-Ta'if was called Malik ibn Awf. Remember this name, Malik ibn Awf. A young man about in his 30s and he was now their leader. The people of Ta'if, their tribe was called Thaqif. And they called upon other tribes. They were called... Uh, the, the, uh, the other tribes were called Hawazin. And there were about 20,000 soldiers. Altogether. The Prophet ﷺ said, we have to go to Ta'if. Because the Prophet ﷺ didn't want to wait in Mecca. He knew they were coming out to him. But he doesn't want to wait in Mecca because he doesn't want to fight in Mecca. It's meant to be a sanctuary. Are you with me? Now the story becomes very interesting. Rasulullah ﷺ gets out with his companions. More than... More than 12,000 soldiers, warriors, horses, camels. Khalid and Walid is with them. Another thousand warriors from Mecca are joining him, including the enemy, Safwan ibn Umayyah. Remember Safwan? He's got four months to embrace Islam or leave, right? He is one of the enemies. But out of, out of uh, what we call uh, Arab pride, they had, they had uh, hostility between them and the Ta'if people. So he went out because of Arab pride and he joined the army to fight which gives us evidence that you can seek help from disbelievers if you can trust that they will be of benefit to the Muslims and Safwan was very wealthy he had lots of camels lots of uh, uh, weaponry very advanced weaponry many many something that would be equal to about a hundred thousand dollars today the Prophet ﷺ goes to him and says can you give us some of your weapons so Safwan said what you want to take it by force the Prophet ﷺ said, no, I want to borrow it and guarantee that if anything happens to it, we will pay you for it. SubhanAllah, Rasulullah is the leader now. He can do anything he wants. 
but he is fair. And tells Safwan, who's clearly the enemy still, he says, I will borrow them. And if anything happens, we'll return it to you. He said, okay, well, if it's borrowing, you can take it. And so he joined the army. Another evidence that shows that you can seek help from the non-Muslims if it means the benefit of the Muslim community. They set off. On their way, Rasulullah sent a spy from them. He went to a ta'if to see what's going on. And he found out that they were preparing to get out of a ta'if and go towards Bakr. So then Rasulullah knew that they were going to meet halfway somewhere there. Somewhere there they're going to fight. The fight's going to happen. The Muslims are advancing. And the kuffar of Ataif, Thaqif and Hawazim are advancing as well. The Prophet ﷺ looks at his army that's massive. It's the largest army so far. And, and some of the newly converts, which were the majority, they looked at themselves for the first time. And they thought, wow, we will not be defeated today because of our number. We are so massive in number. Even Abu Bakr himself says, Ya Rasulullah, if we get defeated, it won't be because we're a small amount. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions this in Surah At-Tawbah. He says that, remember the day of Hunayn, when you were so distracted by your size and amount, rather than remembering that victory only comes from Allah, not from your strength of number and amount. But Allah left them. And He wanted to teach them a lesson. The Prophet ﷺ enters Mecca with his head down. They come out with a bit of fury and they forget that it is not your number. But unfortunately, the majority of the army was distracted by the amount. They had forgotten what happened in Badr, in Uhud, in Khandaq, in Tabuk. It wasn't their amount. And now for the first time, why should they think it was their amount? The people of Ta'if, they came out with Malik ibn Auf, and there was a man with them, a very old senior man, who was extreme, who was a legend in war. He was over 100 years old. His name was Durayd. Durayd. Very old man. And they all listened to him because he was a warlord. He was extremely tactful, tactful in war. Malik ibn Auf, he only had 30 years of 25 years of practice, this guy had 100 years under his arm. He was a very old man, he couldn't fight, so they put him inside of an oasis and they sought his advice about war. So Malik ibn Auf, he wants to be the man and he's very young. He comes and says to everybody, let's take out our women and our children and all of our livestock, everything and everything we own, silver, uh, women, children, livestock, worth millions of dollars in our days today. Now this guy, Duraid, the smart legend fighter, he says, Malik, what are you doing? Why are you sending out the women and the children your wealth? Leave them here. He says, because I, don't, I want the soldiers to not return back. I want them to see that if they return, their family's going to be killed so they can stay in war. And then Duray says to Malik, he says, are you stupid? You are just a sheep herder all your life. You haven't got much experience in war. Do you think that when they get defeated, anyone's going to think about their family or wealth? Return them back and don't lose them. But Malik ibn Auf didn't like it. He doesn't want the man to make his decision. So he calls the people and says, if you don't obey me, I'm going to get out of here. So they all obeyed Malik ibn Auf. And Duraid, the guy, he said, man, I have no say in this today. So they kept going and they reached a place called Hunayn. A place called Hunayn. There, the old man, Duraid, says, where are we? And he said, we're in Hunayn. 
He goes, this is a good place. He goes, if you didn't listen to me about bringing out the women and children, at least listen to me to stay in this area. It's a good area to fight. He goes, all right, I'll listen to you this time. The Prophet ﷺ arrives. The Kuffar put themselves in strategic positions. Very smart. Right hill, left hill, between the bushes, between the uh, palm trees. And they were ready. The Muslims arrived there, but the Muslims are not prepared how? They are not prepared by focusing on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They're focusing on their amount and number, their might. How many weapons they have, how many strong men they have, how many horses they have, how much might they have. Big army. Khalid ibn Walid is ordered to lead a large group, about half of the army, into the hills and he thinks he's going to come around the other side and capture them. But instead, they go up and they start getting attacked from right side and left side. And they started to beat the Muslims. Khalid ibn Walid got off his horse, he tried to fight, and many of them even put Khalid ibn Walid down. And he got stabbed from every side. Wounds on his chest, wounds on his arms, wounds on his face, wounds on his legs. Until Khalid ibn Walid fell. And he couldn't move anymore. He stayed quiet and just sat down. And the Muslims were getting massacred. So they started to retreat and run away. They started to retreat and run away. The Prophet ﷺ is still behind the mountain with his, a lot of his other companions. He sees the Muslim army running away and he calls out, Come to me, come to me, worshippers of Allah. Come to me, worshippers of Allah. Ya Allah. Rasulullah doesn't run away. He says to them, come to me, why? Come and be behind me. I will protect you by the will of Allah. Why? Because Rasulullah's iman in Allah is strong. They couldn't hear him. So Rasulullah calls who? His uncle, Al-Abbas. And Abbas is a big voice, remember? He says, yeah, uncle Abbas, call them back. So he says, oh Muslims, return back to Rasulullah. But they couldn't hear him. They were too scared. They started running away. These are people new to Islam. Who was left? The elite of the Sahabas. The Prophet said to Al-Abbas, Ya Abbas, call Ahlul Shajarah. Call the men, the people who pledged allegiance at the tree. Remember the ones that pledged allegiance at the tree? Call them. Those are the most elite companions. And why did Prophet want them? Because their hearts are close to Allah and they are trusting in Allah fully. And there was only about a few hundred of them. They came and gathered with the Prophet They heard him. And they all stood behind the Prophet ﷺ like a strong army, like a building with its bricks supporting each other, as the Prophet ﷺ describes. That the Muslims are like one body. They support each other like bricks of a building. The Prophet ﷺ says, whenever the heat became hard on us in war, we used to hide behind the Prophet ﷺ. And so the Muslims charged. In an orderly fashion. And the, as they were climbing up the hills, there's only a few hundred of the Muslims. What did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala do? He sent down angels. This was the second time. The Muslims said, we looked up into the sky. We were only a few in number. The other Muslims had left us. They ran away. And we gathered behind the Prophet ﷺ. As we were climbing up the hills, we were afraid, but our trust was with Allah. Suddenly we see like black... Uh, like darkness, a bit of dark fog 
coming from the sky very silently. And it landed on the mountains. And then before our legs, we saw like images of ants crawling. And then we saw the enemy. They looked at us when this fog came down. They turned their back and they ran away. Who were they? They were the angels of Allah. They didn't fight, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent them down to help the Muslims. And all they did was they placed fear in the hearts of the enemies because the enemies could see the angels. And they ran away. They thought they got enforcements from the heavens. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes this exact moment in Surah At-Tawbah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لَقَدْ نَصَرَكُمُ اللَّهُ فِي مَوَاطِنَ كَثِيرَةٍ Allah said, Allah has given you victory in so many instances before. But the day of Hunayn, your mount and your strength distracted you and deceived you. And it could not benefit you anything at all. Then you ran away. Then Allah sent his calm upon the believers and upon his messenger. And he sent down angels which you could not see. And then he tortured the enemy. And such is the consequence of the disbelievers who fight you. Allah then said, As for the believers who ran away, Allah says, and after that Allah forgave those who ran away, for Allah is the most forgiving, the most merciful. Those who ran away came back. And the Ta'if people retreated back to the Ta'if, and they settled inside their castle. And now, Rasulullah reached the castle. They got catapults. They got a kind of machinery that they learned from Salman al-Farisi from Persia. He says, Ya Rasulullah, use catapults. And he said he liked the idea. Because they couldn't penetrate a Ta'if castle. They tried and tried, but the people in Ta'if kept throwing arrows at them. And the Muslims, what happened to them? A lot of them were jahideen. They were getting killed. Now, I didn't mention that their women, children, and wealth, camels and sheep and all of that, where were they? Remember when Malik ibn Awf, he said, let's take out our women and children? They left them all behind. And only the men ran back into the castles. Women, children, cattle, wealth, silver, all of it left behind. The Prophet ﷺ goes back and he says, don't anyone touch the spoils of war. Go and put them at this particular place. Nobody do anything to them. Go and buy clothes, new clothes for the captives and clothe the women, clothe their children, feed them from what you feed your families and give them shelter and give them peace. Look after them. They are a trust. Didn't do anything to them. So we leave them there and now let's get back to the Ta'if where the Prophet ﷺ is at the castle wall. 
he realizes that he can't penetrate the castle. So the Prophet retreats back and they sit awaiting. As they were sitting awaiting, the Prophet remembers Khalid ibn Walid. He wants him to join. So he goes up into the hill and he finds Khalid ibn Walid still bloodied all over, blood coming out from all sides of his body. And Khalid ibn Walid was sitting down, quiet with his back to his camel, just waiting to die, and his head dangling. The Prophet looks at Khalid and he starts to get some of his saliva. And he used to place it on every wound of Khalid ibn Walid. He said, Bismillah. And he placed it on each wound. And by the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it would heal the wound. And no blood would seep anymore. On every single wound. They said there were more than 70 wounds on Khalid ibn Walid. Then the Prophet looked at Khalid and said, Qum ya Khalid. Stand up and go. Khalid Walid, by the will of Allah, stood up and he charged. This is a miracle from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the Prophet is calm. Kind, compassionate, merciful to his companions. He loves them with all of his heart. Always thinking about his companions. Sallallahu alayka ya Rasulullah. He went to a ta'if and he retreated. Set them down and he built two tents for two of his wives. Zainab and Umm Salam. They were with him. They stayed in with him and they all settled over there and placed a siege around, the, around a ta'if. They would not let them get out. A ta'if had supplies which will give them supplies of food for about two years. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he gave them the option to come out and surrender, but they're not surrendering. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam gives them a harder time with the catapults and so on and so forth. Where the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was sitting, now there is a mosque there. It's called Sariya Mosque. And the people, and the people who built that mosque were actually the people of Ta'if, because later on they embraced Islam. They built that mosque and it still lasts till today, obviously renovated and so on. The people of Ta'if kept on staying inside stubbornly. They will not resist, they will keep resisting and they won't, they won't even give in. So the Prophet ﷺ, when he found that, he realized that they have grapevines, they have farming, this is their economy, this is where they make their money from. So in order the Prophet ﷺ to entice them to give out, because they thought we've got our farms, we can still live off them, we can still survive. The Prophet ﷺ then said, destroy their farms. Now it's haram to destroy farms. But for this occasion, he had to do it. Why? If he leaves them, these were people who were the biggest threat left for the Muslims. And after all they have done, they want to kill the Prophet ﷺ and kill the Muslims. He can't leave them alone, so he had to deal with it there and then. He said, burn their grapevines, burn their farms. But then, their leader, Abu Yalila, is the guy that abused the Prophet in the beginning, remember? He comes out and says, please, give me peace. Muhammad. Okay, you're fighting us. Why destroy our fields? If you are victorious, you can use them yourself and benefit from them. And if you don't, if you're not victorious, then at least people can benefit from them and leave it up to God. That was an amazing statement that the Prophet looks at Abu Yalila and he remembers even, this is the man who abused the Prophet This is the man who's the cause of the Prophet sadness for that year. He looks at him and he acknowledges that what he is saying is correct. So the Prophet anyone who ever approached him, be it Muslim or non-Muslim, if they had a better, a better suggestion, something that would benefit people more, he would always take it, even from the enemy. So he took it from him and he said to the Muslims, leave the fields alone. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Only a prophet would do that. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, as he is waiting, he's laying siege, 
And this, brothers, I just want to say this lesson. No matter how, what you feel about someone, whether you hate them or you resent them, or they've done something wrong to you, a Muslim always submits to the truth. Someone tells you the truth, submit to it, my brothers and sisters. A strong person is not someone who can argue and debate and shut another person up. A strong person is someone who when someone says the truth, they are able to recognize it and follow it. Even if it comes from a little child. Even if it comes from the biggest enemy. Even if it comes from a non-Muslim who hates Islam. Even if it comes from someone who you don't like. You accept the truth. And that is the strength, my dear brothers and sisters. The Prophet ﷺ was almost about to conquer a Ta'if when, remember that guy named Uyayna? Uh, I don't know if you ever remember him. He is a cunning man. He embraced Islam, but he only really embraced Islam for the spoils and war and wealth. He goes, Ya Rasulullah, let me go and convince them to surrender. He says, all right, go. Prophet ﷺ trusted him. He says, go. So this guy is a cunning, shifty guy. He goes inside and instead of telling them to surrender, he says to them, hmm. Your Prophet Muhammad, he has never seen such strength like your castle. Your castle is well protected and I don't think he'll be able to penetrate it. So I want you to resist. Keep resisting him. Now why did Uyayna do that? He's a Muslim, but he's got hypocrisy. What is it? His tribe wasn't there yet. They had returned and he wanted them to share in the glory. Remember the Arabs had this idea that if you fight and die, and you're victorious, you have something called glory. They fight for glory, so you may be remembered. And he wanted his tribe to be remembered over time for glory. And they went there yet. So he thought, if Muhammad takes over, وسلم, we won't, my tribe won't share the glory, it won't be mentioned. So he goes, I want to delay it until my tribe gets there. SubhanAllah. He wants his own maslaha, his own benefit, at the expense of the benefit of the whole. When he returned back to the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet ﷺ says to him, what did you say? And he said the opposite. He says, I told them to, res- to stop resisting. Muhammad has got the, 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 the help of Allah and he will come in and take you over. Then the Prophet ﷺ became angry and said to him, you have lied. You said to them this and you said to them that and you said to them that. Jibreel ﷺ told him. So Uyayna gets blushed and he goes, look, I'm still new to Islam, yeah, messenger of Allah. Astaghfirullah al-Azim, make dua for me, make dua for me. Astaghfirullah. There's this funny story, I don't know if I should share it with you, it's, it's a true story, it happened back in, in Lebanon, I remember. This guy had an affair with his friend's wife, obviously they don't believe in Allah probably. So the husband comes into the house and the guy hid in the closet. So he looks, for, he looks around and then opens the closet and finds the guy. The guy, he gets so scared that he goes and starts praying. He starts praying, there's Allahu Akbar, thinking he's not going to touch me while I'm praying. So, astaghfirullah, astaghfirullah. I remember once this guy hit, hit my car from the back. I came outside, looks at the car, he goes, go ya akhi, go, this is from the shaitan. He brings in religion into it. They go, akhi, pay me for my damage. Shaitan, man, shaitan, move, come on, go. Sometimes parking our car, another person hits your car. Love for your brother what you love for yourself. They bring in the, the religion. Akhi, yes. Pay for my car. If you love me, they say, Allah, pay for it. No, no, astaghfirullah, fear Allah. We want dunya, dunya, always dunya. So my brothers and sisters in Islam, this is not what we're like. If you love your brother for the sake of Allah, you give him his rights immediately. You have a business, you employ people. 
Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, listen to this hadith, أَعْطِ الْعَامِلَ أَجْرَهُ أو أَعْطُ الْأَجْرَ أَجْرَهُ الْمُؤْجِرَ أَجْرَهُ قَبْلَ أَنْ يَجُفَّ عَرَقَهُ Give your employees their wealth, their right, before their sweat dries. Before their sweat dries. In this beautiful hadith it means, the employer, get your right. So he's sweating, it means he's done his job. Before it dries, pay him. And what it means is that, you know, pay him at the, what you have agreed at that appointed time, whether it's fortnightly or weekly or monthly. But the point is, don't delay it from what you have agreed. So, brothers and sisters, this is the fairness. So, Umar ibn al-Khattab stands up and he says, This Uyayna is a hypocrite. Let me kill him. Typical Umar al-Lana. The Prophet looks at Umar and says, No, ya Umar, don't kill him. I don't want people to say that Muhammad kills his companions. Because that's what they're going to say. Listen. Listen, brothers and sisters. This man, Uyayna, he's going and putting his own benefit at the expense of the benefit of the whole. What did Rasulullah do? He put the benefit of the whole and forgave the man. Because there's something called maslaha amma and maslaha khasa. Your own personal benefit and the benefit of the community. Someone may deserve punishment, but what harm will it do? Will it do? Some brothers and sisters, they misunderstand the hadith. If you, any of you sees a munkar, any of you sees a wrong, Change it with your hands. If you're not able to change it with your hands, change it with your mouth. Talk. If you can't talk, hate it in your heart. And that's the last resort. Some people misunderstand that. They think that hating it with your heart is low iman. No, it's not. It's wisdom. They're just different options and see which one is better. If changing with your hands benefits more, then change with your hands. If changing with your hands is going to cause mafsada, meaning more harm, then what is already the harm? Like it's going to cause greater harm than what the harm is? Then no, speak. If speaking is going to cause greater harm than what the harm is, then hate it in your heart. At least don't do more damage than that. No, some people, they want to ignite it. Are you, are you really talking for your ego? Are you talking for views? Are you talking for likes on social media? Are you talking so people can say, wow, what a great speaker. He's sick, man. Sick, dude. What a great... Is that what you're after? Or are you after the benefit and the pleasure of Allah? A lot of us will put our own benefit at the expense of others. In business trade, in money, anything resulting in family, we break up relationships for our personal benefit. No, brothers and sisters, a good mu'min looks at the benefit of the community before himself. I know some people say, from now on I'm just going to think about myself. Just myself, myself. Yeah, you do look after yourself in things that concern you. But if you go out at the expense of harming the community, then no. You are going to harm yourself, your family, your children, and the community. Because if we harm the community, we are harming ourselves. Can't you see, brothers and sisters? There are people who are still out there. They don't want Muslims to be here. Some of them. And they talk against Muslims. We have nobody but each other, really. We are the only ones who the Prophet ﷺ taught to love each other like brothers and sisters. And to be fair and just. But we have each other, my brothers and sisters, really. We're the only people who can really look out for each other. If we don't look out for each other, there's nothing left. Support one another. So, Rasulullah then sits down and what happens? He sees a dream. He goes to sleep and sees a dream. He saw a bowl of butter. Butter. And he saw a, uh, a rooster coming to the bowl of butter and pecking it and making the bowl fall. 
So when he woke up, he says to Abu Bakr, this is what I saw. Allah will not give me the permission to take over Ta'if. Umar al Khattab hears this and he says, Ya Rasulullah, do you want me to tell the Muslims to retreat? He said, yes, tell the Muslims to retreat. So he goes out and says, Muslims, Rasulullah commands you to retreat. The Muslims look at it and they said, what? We're almost about to take over Ta'if. Why retreat? Why? We still want to fight. He said, the Messenger of Allah commands you to do so. Abu Bakr comes out and he says, he receives command from the heavens. They said, they try to convince him so we can keep going. They come to Umar ibn Khattab says, try to convince the Prophet to keep going. But Umar ibn Khattab says to them, I will never do such a thing ever again. Do you guys remember the Hudaybiyah Treaty? When all of us went against the, the, the decision of the Prophet Remember that agreement that he signed? And we thought that this is terrible. And I was one of them who said something that I would never ever say again. I doubted. I doubted whether this was the right thing or whether the Prophet is doing the right thing or not. And now I regret it after seeing that in the treaty of Hudaybiyah, that peace treaty that we did, more Muslims converted to Islam in only those two years, more Muslims than the conversion of people from the time the Prophet became a prophet to the day of Hudaybiyah. From the time the Prophet became a prophet to the day of Hudaybiyah was almost, what, 30 plus another 7, that's 20 years. In 20 years, in 2 years, he said there were more Muslims to convert in Islam than in 20 years. No, Allah, I will not go against him. He says the truth. They said, please, just ask him. When the Prophet realized that his companions, their heart is to fight, he thought to himself, I can command them. But it won't work. In the long run, they're not going to like it. I want their hearts. So he said, go ahead. You're going to have to learn the hard way. He says, okay, then fight. Rasulullah wasn't a dictator. He wasn't a pharaoh. His heart was with his people. The Muslims. In fact, even the non-Muslims. All people. Animals. Everything. And so they fought for one more day. They realized the companions one more day that they cannot defeat the people of Ta'if. So then they said, you know what? Rasulullah was right. <laughs> Let's retreat. And so they retreated from Al-Ta'if. Where did they go? They went to that valley where they had left the spoils of war. Remember? The spoils of war. The spoils of war they were approximately, let me just find the number, how many they were. Anyway, the spoils of war, brothers and sisters, they were in the thousands. Thousands of women and children, thousands of camels, thousands of sheep, thousands of ounces of, of silver. Yet they were still there. He enters, and as he was entering, a man comes along from a distance. His name was Suraka ibn Malik. Anyone remember Suraka? He is also known as Suraka ibn Juhum. And this man, Suraka, he says, Ya Rasulullah, Ya Rasulullah. People don't know him. So he takes out a paper. Remember, remember in the beginning when Rasulullah was running away as a fugitive 
And Suraqa went after them and he found him and Abu Bakr was about to kill them, remember? He was the only one who got to them and then his horse fell and he gave up. And Prophet wrote a letter to him saying, the day when it comes that you want to come and see me, you have this letter as a guarantor of your safety. Because his tribe didn't have a peace treaty yet. So he comes and he said, who's this man? He said, I've got a letter, I've got a letter from the Prophet. Look, and Prophet said, who's that? He says, I'm Suraqa. Prophet remembered. And he said, yes, ya Suraqa. I, it has come time for me to fulfill my promise. Come. He comes in and Suraqa ibn Malik embraces Islam. He says the Shahada and he embraces Islam. And then he asks him a question. He says, Ya Rasulullah, I have a pool of water. My camels drink from it. And sometimes other camels, stray camels, they come and drink from my pool. I don't want them to drink. So if they drink from my pool of water, do I get rewarded from Allah? The Prophet ﷺ says to him, Every, Yes, you will. Everything that has lungs and breathes and you feed, you will get rewarded from Allah Taala. Every ant, every insect, every creature, dog, pig, donkey, cow, beast, camels, anything, that takes from the risk that Allah has given you, you get rewarded for it. I don't want people now going and uh, buying mosquitoes and then putting their hands in there and letting the mosquitoes suck their blood, for example. It doesn't work that way. But naturally. Sometimes you have a bit of food left over at home. Instead of putting it in a rubbish bin, designate an area in your backyard. Cats can eat. Birds can eat. Isn't that correct? You see a house of ants. Instead of destroying their home, avoid it. You see a bird, leave it, let it drink, haram. Wallahi, I remember this brother, I still remember, he had a fig tree, fig, you know, figs, fig tree in his backyard. And the people used to say to him, put a net over it so birds don't come and eat. Or put some poison or something. He said, la wallah, I will not prevent the risk which is naturally given to the birds. They used to come and eat from the figs, so what? You get reward for every animal and creature and they make dua for you. Isn't that amazing? Sallallahu alayhi ya Rasulullah who informed us this. So my brothers and sisters, then suddenly a Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa goes to the spoils of war, he sees the women and the children, and he says, nobody touch the spoils of war. Let's wait. Maybe Thaqif, Ta'if will come and embrace Islam. Or maybe they will surrender and we can give them back their families and their wealth. I don't want to take it from them. Rasulullah is the messenger. He's not after worldly possessions. They waited and they waited and they waited. Because you know the nature in the wars those days. You fight, you share the spoils of war. Women and children become captives and they become slaves for the, for the people. Because that's how the world worked, brothers and sisters. Remember I explained slavery. Otherwise they become public property. They had to do it. They had to do it to ensure the survival and protection of these people. And Rasulullah is the only one in the world who treated it with mercy and compassion. He says, wait. Suddenly, Rasulullah waits and waits and they didn't come along. They didn't come along. So the Prophet had no choice but to declare the distribution of the spoils of war. He named who's going to get what among the Muhajireen and the Ansar. And he named who's going to get what among the soldiers that fought. He distributed it. And the Prophet Allah had ordered that any spoils of war, a fifth one over five. A fifth of it, by law of the Qur'an, goes to who? 
to the Prophet He takes it. But what does he take it for? He takes it to guard it, and if people are in need of it, he would spend it on them. He would spend it on the poor, the widows, the needy, people who are destitute. They used to come to the Prophet Remember how we hear the hadith about this man came to the Prophet and this woman came to the Prophet and he gave her this. And they used to say, Ya Rasulullah, give me some of your wealth. Give me. And he used to give them whatever he had. Those were from the spoils of war, the fifth which he got. He never kept it to himself. In fact, Rasulullah died with only seven dinars, something equal to less than seven dollars. And he said to Aisha anha, what's left of my wealth? She said, 70 dinars, Ya Rasulullah. He said, give them fi sabilillah. What am I to say to Allah when I meet him and I've still got 70 dinars? So I'm saying this so nobody can ever assume or the shaitan coming to you thinking the Prophet takes a fifth, he liked money. La wallah. Don't ever assume that. So the Prophet then distributed, but no one had taken it yet. He left it, but it was by name. You know, on, on lay-by, like that. They're about to take it in a few days. When they get back to Medina. When they got back to Medina and they took the captives and the silver and everything like that, and the cattle, and the Prophet ﷺ realized representatives from a Ta'if came to the Prophet ﷺ and they said, Oh Muhammad, we have decided to convert to Islam. All of a Ta'if to convert to Islam. SubhanAllah. In the beginning, they were fighting. They were going in. But when Allah showed him the dream, he said, there's no need. The Sahabas went against him and said, Ya Rasulullah, why, why, why? He said, let's go. We have no permission. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted to give some favor to people of Ta'if. Why? Out of love for the Prophet when he made his dua years ago. Oh Allah, do not destroy them from, from their loins. There may be a progeny of people who worship you. And truly, my brothers and sisters, the Ta'if became one of the strongest Muslims till today. They came to him saying, Ya Rasulullah, I want to convert to Islam. So Prophet accepted their conversion and their allegiance. And then they said, Ya Rasulullah, the spoils of war, can you return them back to us? Prophet then said, it's already been distributed by name. It's going to be very difficult for me to bring it all back to you. However, anyone who asks anything, Rasulullah, any person who used to go to Rasulullah and you ask him for something, he would give it to you. You ask him for forgiveness, he would forgive you. Be it an enemy or non-enemy. Subhanallah. So he said, however, make it easier on me. Choose, do you want your family back or the wealth back? And I'll try my best. They said, we'll choose our family. We want our women and children back. He said, okay. Tomorrow at Fajr time in masjid, in my masjid in Nabawi, come inside. And I want you all to stand up and say, O Messenger of Allah, please give us back our women and children. And then I, he planned it. He said, then I will say to you, in front of all the people, he said, then I will say to you, I give up my spoils of war and return them to you. I'll give up my share and I'll give them back to you. And the share of all the relative or the children of Abdul Muttalib, my clan, will all give them back to you. And let's see what happens. The Prophet knows what's going to happen. Is Muhajirin and the Ansar, they see the Prophet doing something, what do you think they're going to do? They're going to copy him. Wallahi, if Rasulullah bent down 
bent down to avoid a branch that was in front of him, they would bend down just for the sake of it. If he spat, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, they would grab his spit and wipe it on themselves. If he sweat, they would grab it and put it on themselves, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And the Sahabas, I don't know who's more amazing. These people of Sahabas? Or Prophet how he taught them. So the next day at Fajr time, they did exactly that. They stood up and they said, Ya Rasulullah, please give us our family back. Prophet said, I declare that I give you back my share and the share of the sons of Abdul Muttalib. The Muhajirin and the Ansar hear this. And as soon as they heard it, they said, And we all give our share back to them as well. La ilaha illallah. Brothers and sisters, look, I know you're probably thinking, ah, that's normal. If you go back to that time, this was unprecedented. No one in the universe, in all the people of the world, would ever assume that this is what's going to happen. No one's ever done that. No one, just by merely hearing. And the Prophet doesn't even force them, this is their right. Just from the Prophet doing it, they did it. It must be good enough. And so they took back their women and their children. Prophet doesn't want their families. He wants a way out, always resorting to peace, always resorting to peace, my brothers and sisters in Islam. So they went back, and before they went back, Rasulullah said, Where is Malik ibn Awf? Remember the leader? Because where is he? They said, Ya Rasulullah, he's still hiding in there. He's still hiding. The Prophet said, Go and tell him, if he embraces Islam and comes to me, he is free. And I will give him back his family and 100 camels. No one ever does that. No one ever does that. So they go and tell him that, and Malik ibn Awf doesn't believe it. He goes, I fought him, we wanted to assassinate him, wanted to kill him, and after all that he says this to me. So he comes to the Prophet and he embraces Islam. And the Prophet gives him back his family and a hundred camels. And then he makes him and appoints him as the administrator of the Muslims of his tribe. He doesn't even take away their tribe. The Prophet doesn't come in and says, we're taking over your tribe. Never. Every tribe they took over, if they embraced Islam or they surrendered on a peace treaty, he would make them in charge of their own. So he said, you remain in charge of your people. Allahu Akbar. Malik, he was so affected by the Prophet's compassion and kindness, like anyone else who ever met the Prophet. He said, famous statement, I have neither seen nor heard anyone like Muhammad so far. When he is asked to grant something, he grants more than what he was asked. If you if he asked him any question, he will even tell you about the events that will take place tomorrow. He will tell you the future. He never held knowledge away from you, if you asked him. Anything. There is even a story here you're going to find, where a Bedouin, he, as the Prophet ﷺ giving out spoils of war, the Bedouin comes and grabs the Prophet's neck, and he pulls it down until a mark is laid on the Prophet's neck. He says, give me some of your wealth, Ya Rasulullah. The Prophet ﷺ distributed everything. And he said, I don't have anything left. It came too late. Wallahi, he did not rebuke him. Wallahi, he did not shout at him. Wallahi, he did not tell him off. Not a single word. Didn't even raise his voice. He said, but come to me to my home and eat from what I have at home and take from what I share with my family. And that Bedouin went with the Prophet and spent three nights, because that was the tradition of the Arabs. He ate and slept and took what the Prophet had in his own family. The next after three days, he stood up in front of all the Muhammad, all the people, and he said, the Bedouin, Oh Allah, have mercy on me and on Muhammad, and don't have mercy on anyone else, because no one else deserves it. He's one of those, you know, you find them now on social media and people saying, eh, no one else deserves anything. Just me. 
Seriously. And then what happened? The Prophet ﷺ looks at him and says, No, Allah's mercy is wider. Wider. Why have you made restricted something that's so wide? He says, Okay. Oh Allah, have mercy on me and on Muhammad and on to the believers. Prophet ﷺ said, Wider, wider, wider. Whoever deserves it. Allah's mercy encompasses all. Can you imagine someone murders, steals, and then comes out and Allah still gives them rain to drink? Drops of water still come down? Huh? They come out and they still drink from the water. Allah is Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. Ar-Rahman means the everlasting source of mercy. It means it never runs out. It's the source. Ar-Rahim, it means the one who gives mercy forever and never cuts out. As the Prophet ﷺ is living this moment and people are embracing Islam by themselves, they're noticing the compassion, the mercy of the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ, he takes a fifth of the spoils of war for himself and distributes whatever was left. Now, he goes, and I want you to listen to this very carefully. Remember how he enters Mecca and about a thousand people embrace Islam? Among them is Abu Sufyan, among them is Ikrimah, and all those other people who used to be his enemies. But they're related to the Prophet and they are his real people, the Meccans. Isn't that correct? And the Muhajirun. The Ansar, who are in Medina, they're not related to the Prophet But they gave him, they supported him, they gave him shelter, they gave him from their own selves, they halved their wealth for him, they sacrificed their life for the Prophet but they're not related to the Prophet So I want you now to listen to this. The Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he goes to the, to the people who had embraced Islam from Mecca. And some of those who are still non-Muslim. And he starts to distribute the spoils of war to them. The Muhajirin al-Sala had just given up their spoils. So they've got nothing left, yeah? The rest of the spoils, he goes and gives it to all those who had just converted to Islam or those who are close to converting. Or those who had shared with him, the people of Mecca and the others. And the Ansar are watching this. He's giving all the spoils away to them. He comes up to Abu Sufyan, for example, the leader of Quraysh, and his sons. And he gives him 300 camels, 120 ounces of silver. Abu Sufyan looks at it and he says this. Fidaka Abi wa ummi. I would ransom my father and mother for you, Ya Rasulullah. How generous and charitable you are. When we fought against you, you fought so nicely. When we made peace, you made peace so nicely. May God reward you in good things. Then he goes and he sees another companion who later on became Safwan. Safwan is still a non-Muslim. And he was one month later. And what does he see? He sees him staring at something. He comes in and sees him staring at a small valley. In that valley, there were camels and sheep. He says, Ya Safwan, do you like what you see? And Safwan says, yes, I do. He says, it is all yours and the valley itself. Safwan looks at the Prophet He says, the heart of nobody except a prophet can be so pure and do something like this. Good and generous. I fought you. I conspired against you. And this is how you are. Your heart is as pure as that. 
Just forget about it all. He said, I did not hate anyone more than the messenger of Allah until the day when I took that valley thing. Then he became the most beloved person to me. Safwan embraces Islam. You can find this story in Ibn Sa'd, volume 5, and Ibn Al-Athir, Ibn Hisham, volumes 4 and 3. Now the Ansar, they're seeing the Prophet ﷺ give out to all these non-Muslims and all these newly converts. Then they started to talk. They said, Muhammad, the Prophet ﷺ may have become sympathetic to his family. He's gone back to Mecca and now he's sympathetic to them. He's back with his family. He's kind of forgotten about us. Now, they kind of, you know, said that feeling, look, you know, I mean, we supported him and now he's back with his family, I guess. Get ready to go. Sa'd ibn Ubadah, one of their leaders, he actually came to the Prophet ﷺ and said, I'm not going to hide this from the Messenger of Allah. He says, Ya Rasulullah, this is what the Ansar are saying. Prophet ﷺ said, really? He says, yeah, he says, you've given all the spoils to the Meccan people and there's nothing left. They gave up all those spoils and you gave them nothing. And it's as though you're feeling you're missing your family. The Prophet ﷺ said, what about you, Ya Sa'ad? He said, Ya Rasulullah, I don't agree with them, but I happen to be one of their people, that's all. He said, gather them for me and wait for me to come to talk to them. So the Prophet ﷺ came to them and he said, O Ma'ashar al-Ansar, my life is together with your life. My death is together with your death. Is it true what I heard? And he said, Ya Rasulullah, what do you want us to say? He said, O oh, Ansar, did I not come to you when you were in the wrong path? Did God not grant you guidance through me? Did God not make you rich when you were poor through me? You were enemies of one another. Did God not soften your hearts and unite you? And all the Ansar said with one word, Yes, O Messenger of Allah, you found us in darkness, we attained light thanks to you. You found us near a hole of fire, we got rid of it thanks to you. You found us in aberration, meaning in losthood, and we attained the truth path thanks to you. We accepted Allah as Lord, Islam as the religion, and Muhammad as the Prophet. The rights and bounties of Allah and His Messenger on us are superior to everything. We are grateful to Allah and His Messenger. O Messenger of Allah, do whatever you wish. But despite that, the Prophet ﷺ did not finish. He continued. O Ma'ashar al-Ansahar, if you had wished, if you had wished, you could have said this to me, and it would be the truth. And I would not say anything back. You could have said, O Messenger of Allah, you came to us when you were rejected by others and we sheltered you. You came to us when you were left alone and we helped you. You had been kicked out by your people, but we looked after you like our souls. Yes, if you had said so, 
I would have confirmed your statement. O Ansar, do you not want to return to your land with the messenger of Allah while they leave the goods cam leave with the goods, camels and sheep which they have obtained? And the Ansar said, Yes, O Messenger of Allah. They looked at everybody and you can see the entire Ansar crying and wailing until their beards were soaked with tears. Let them go with their camels and their belongings and their sheep. And you return with the Messenger of Allah. If you had wished to say it, and I cannot deny it, you could have said, O Messenger of Allah, you came to us, they kicked you out and we sheltered you. You were barren and we gave you. You were destitute and we, they said you're a liar and we believed you. Brothers and sisters, who of us is able to humble themselves that way and admit when people have helped us and return that favor with full? Only a messenger of Allah can do this in absolute piety. And we hear about our brothers and sisters in places like China who are calling out that there are no Muslims there for them. We hear about our brothers and sisters in Palestine, in Yemen, in all parts of the world, they cry night and day and there are no Muslims for them. And we are here in this state, bothered with simple first world problems, fighting each other and being upset with each other over selfish things. My brothers and sisters in Islam, not to put guilt in your heart, but to refocus our priorities as Muslims. Focus on your family. Focus on yourselves. See what is wrong with you first, and then Allah will change what is around you. The statement of the Prophet ﷺ reverberates until today, until the end of time. Do not return after me, a people who will, who will strike each other's necks. Do not return after me, backbiting and gossiping about one another and ripping each other's honor apart. Do not turn after me, oppressing each other and taking each other's property and wealth. Be O worshippers of Allah, brothers and sisters. There is no difference between an Arab and an non-Arab except in piety. Even till today, we still hear nationalism coming out when the anger arises, when the emotions arise, when we talk about politics. Prophet said, leave it, for Allah it is a stinking carcass. You are brothers and sisters in Islam, the strongest bond ever. Then the Prophet ﷺ went and he did his Umrah and he appointed Utab, a governor to Mecca, and Mu'adh ibn Jabal anhu to look after the people, to teach the people Islam and Quran in Mecca. And the Prophet ﷺ returned with the Ansar to Medina a few days before the end of the Qa'da in the 11th year. Of Hijrah. My brothers and sisters in Islam, there's one thing I also want to mention, and it's probably good to talk about it. When the Muslims were going off to Al-Tarif, they passed by a tree, and they found that some Arabs used to hang their weapons on that tree. And they used to seek blessings from that tree with those weapons. So the newly converts, so the people from Mecca, and some of the Arabs, they said, Ya Rasulullah, ij'al lana dhatu anwat kama lahum dhatu anwat. 
Her Messenger of Allah, make for us a tree, a good luck tree, where we can hang our weapons on it, just like these people have a good luck tree to hang their weapons on it. They still have polytheism, you know, still a habit in their thought. Although they didn't believe in it, but still it affected them. So the Prophet ﷺ said to them, Allahu Akbar, Wallahi you have said exactly as the children of Israel said to Moses, the exact same word. Oh Allah, make us good luck trees like they have good luck trees. He said, this is polytheism. Leave it, for it is shirk. Examples of these things today are lucky charms that people believe in. Or amulets. Or superstitious beliefs that people think about that it gives them good luck. This is, my dear brothers and sisters in Islam, shirk. Some of it is minor shirk. And if you believe in it instead of Allah, it's major shirk. Some people, they say, see a pin, pick it up, and all day long, you'll have good luck. See a pin, let it lay, and your luck will pass away. These are common things you might have heard before. Tarot reading, palm reading, all of this is shirk. Whoever attends a palm reader and does not believe what they say, 40 days of their prayer will not be accepted. This hadith is in Sahih Muslim and Bukhari. Whoever believes what a palm reader or a soothsayer or a fortune teller tells them, they have disbelieved in the Qur'an. That's the hadith is in Bukhari and Muslim. Superstitious beliefs. Seeing a black cat passing your way as bad luck, for example. Rabbit foot brings you good luck. I don't know what. Knocking on wood. Because they used to believe that spirits used to hide in trees. So knock on wood, so whenever someone sees your baby or sees your beauty or something like that, what do some people do? They say, knock on wood so they don't jinx you. This is shirk. You're believing that this wood has the power that only Allah has to protect you from something superstitious. And one of the most widespread things that are happening now, especially among youth and a lot of women, I hear it a lot, are the zodiac signs, star signs, zodiac, in a herald sun you find at the bottom, newspapers. Be careful today, full moon. This is not going to happen to you. If you were born on this day, the positioning of the stars are like this, the position of the sun was like that. It means that you're like this and you're like that. People, people, they look at it and they kind of make a connection. They say, oh, you know what? I am that type of a person. Man, the other day I just did it. This must be true. But it's a psychological thing. I can tell you anything and most likely you have it. You'll believe that I, am, I can now make a religion. You can come now and start believing that I'm blessed in some way. Astrological beliefs, believing that uh, the, the month that you were born, the month that you were born reflects the position of the sun, or, the, or the, the position of the sun reflects the month that you were born, and it determines your personality, your character, your emotions, and how these factors then affect your relationships in life. Because you start thinking about it. SubhanAllah, your whole life starts to rotate around it. And that's because when people don't have a solid belief in Allah, in something that is true, they want to hold on to something else. Look, it is true that when the full moon comes out, it affects the tidal waves. That's true. And it may, scientists say, it may affect the fluid in your blood, which changes your mood a little bit. But that has nothing to do with zodiac signs and astrology and magic and I don't know what. It's like the change of the weather. It affects your mood. If you sleep in a little bit, it affects your mood. Isn't that correct? Different hormonal changes affects your mood. Pregnancy affects your mood. Giving birth affects your mood. Isn't that correct? The wife talking on your, your head all day affects your mood, right? 
The husband talking in the wife's ear affects her mood. Everything really affects your mood. However, what do you do about it? Okay, go and take a walk. Go and run. Do a hobby. Read. Read Quran. Go out. Do, change your mind. Right? Take a break. Do some weights. Lift some weights. All of these things help you. You don't sit there and say, Yeah, it's because I was born in January. I'm a sarcastic person. No, I can't help it. Allahu Akbar, you just decided and sealed the fate upon yourself? Because you were born in January? No, change. Help yourself. Alhamdulillah. So my brothers and sisters in Islam, there is no such thing in Islam as bad omens. We only have good omens. You're allowed, for example, as a, a cloud comes by and you say, that cloud, that cloud looks like uh, a love heart. Maybe Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is showing me that soon I'll find the love of my life. That's okay. You can do that. But you don't say the cloud is a god or that is definitely a sign. You just say maybe Allah is doing this. But to use bad omens is haram. To say bad omens. Oh, this means this or this means that. Or something is blessed because of that. Or something is, uh, you know, uh, is a great saint. Because look, some brothers once they were making a barbecue. Barbecue. After they finished the barbecue, they have ashes. Ashes in the barbecue. So they spilt the ashes. And this brother, he says to me, because wallahi brother. And when they do that squint of the eye and they do that, I think, here we go, something, angels are coming down. Wallahi brother, all of us saw this. The ashes went on the wall, and after everything came down, we saw the name of Allah on there. Arabic, man, it's all squiggly lines anyway. <laughs> you can make anything out of it. <laughs> anything. I said, Habibi, come here, come here. I will never hear this cringe-worthy statement from you ever again if you want to be my friend. Come here. Okay, I can look at those lines and I could be a Christian and say, no, backwards it says Jesus. It makes Maryam. Look, look, it's Maryam. I can say Allah and then right next to it, Jesus. Jesus is God. Can I? I can see a little cross. SubhanAllah. Brothers and sisters, we have the Quran with us. We don't need to resort to these little things. Oh, look, we found a fish and it's got this little pattern. It looks like the name Muhammad. So what? Alhamdulillah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has signs everywhere around you. La ilaha illallah. You're the bread, the air that you're breathing. Isn't that a sign from Allah? The hair that's growing on your hair right now, the palms that you have, the fact that you can see. Which of the favors of your Lord can you deny? Everything is a sign of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But here's the thing we take the signs of Allah for granted and we forget. My brothers and sisters in Islam, Allah is always showing us miracles in our life. Alhamdulillah is there and turn to Allah. Next week, insha'Allah ta'ala, we will talk about the end days of the Prophet. We still have Ma'arak al Tabuk and then the last days of the Prophet. Two more lectures. Uh, maybe next Thursday we'll hold this class. If not, I will announce it on my Facebook page. I, if, if I may not be here, may, but uh, to confirm it, insha'Allah, Jamal, I will put it on the Facebook page and the Preston Mosque Facebook page, okay? Insha'Allah, just to confirm. Jazakumullah khair. Hada wa sallallahu ala nabina wa habibina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in wa man tabi'ahum bi ihsanin ila yawmiddin. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.